Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. And down below, all fifth grade and down below may leave now because you're going to start working on the Christmas music. It's hard to believe Christmas music, but you're going to start working on Christmas music, Christmas choir. So uh, at this time, all those fifth grade and down below over the next six weeks or so will leave to do that. The rest of you can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1. And as we are turning to Romans chapter 1, some of you that are of the older generation know this classic scene from American television. Some of you that are younger have never seen this before in your life, but I want to start out by showing you a very famous clip from a very famous television show this morning. Yes, ma'am. Now, the candy will pass by on this conveyor belt and continue into the next room where the girls will pack it. Now, your job is to take each piece of candy and wrap it in one of these papers and then put it back on the belt. You understand? Yes, sir. Yes, Yes, (coughs) ma'am. Let her roll! (laughs) Let her roll! Well, wait here. Somebody's asleep at the switch. What are you doing up here? I thought you were downstairs boxing chocolates. Oh, they kicked me out of there fast. Why? I kept pinching them to see what kind they were. (laughs) This is the fourth department I've been in. Oh, I didn't do so well either. All right, girls. Now, this is your last chance. If one piece of candy gets past you and into the packing room unwrapped, you're fired. Yes, ma'am. Let her
right, so some of you thought that was pretty funny. You may think, why in the world is he showing a clip from I Love Lucy about chocolate? Well, I want you to think about the chocolate factory and how fast the chocolate was coming down. And I want to read a famous quote by John Calvin that illustrates this whole issue. John Calvin said this, The human mind is a perpetual factory of idols. Daily experience shows us that the sinful mind is always restless until it finds something that looks like itself in which it finds vain comfort as a representation of God. As a result of this blind passion, men have, in almost all ages since the world began, set up imaginary idols before their eyes to take the place of God. Over the next four weeks, we are going to explore the human heart, a perpetual factory of idols. Sometimes our hearts keep generating these idols that just keep coming and coming and coming. Now, you may ask the question, why do we focus on idolatry? Why now in the life of our church? Why idolatry? Of all the things that we could talk about, why idolatry? Well, over the past 10 or plus years, I've mentioned idolatry from time to time, but I've never really taken us on a journey to look at specifically how the Bible defines idolatry, how the Bible illustrates idolatry, how the Bible warns against the dangers of idolatry. So over the next four four weeks, from the New Testament and from the Old Testament, we're going to explore this whole issue of idolatry. And we have a key verse that we're going to keep coming back to week in and week out. It's a very short verse. It's at the end of 1 John 5, 21, and it simply says this, little children, keep yourself from idols. Keep yourself from idols. That word keep in the original language means to guard or to watch closely. It's a command, the word to obey with intensity. So over the next few weeks, we as a church, we as individuals are going to understand what does it mean to keep ourselves diligently from idols. Which brings up a very interesting question. When you think of idols or you think of idolatry, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? Some of you may think of a statue of Buddha that you worship or when we go on our mission trips to India and we see statues and idols all over the place, we may think in our mind uh, an idol is is a statue. But may I suggest to you that an idol is anything that you create in your mind or anything that you take out of God's creation and you elevate it above God. That is an idol. So from Romans chapter 1 this morning, we're going to see how Paul describes for us the nature of idolatry. And so let's just ask the basic question, what exactly is idolatry? What is it? Let me give you a definition. It's a very basic definition. At its core, idolatry is worshiping and serving any created thing rather than the Creator. It's worshiping and serving any created thing rather than the Creator. Martin Luther, in his larger catechism, talks about idolatry in relation to the Ten Commandments, and he defines it as this. This is the way Martin Luther, and by the way, yesterday was Reformation Day, and we celebrate the fact that Martin Luther nailed his uh, 95 theses on the door of the church there in Wittenberg. This is what Martin Luther said. Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, 
that is your God. Trust and faith of a heart alone make both God and idol. So here's an even more serious statement about idolatry that I think Romans chapter 1 captures. Here's what we're going to look at this morning. It's this statement. You will eventually reflect what you admire and worship. And that will either save you or it will destroy you. You will eventually look like what you value the most. You will eventually begin to obsess. You will eventually begin to look like. You will reflect what you value most. And if it's Christ, you will begin to look more and more like Christ. If it's an idol, you will begin to look more and more like that idol. One will save you. One will eventually destroy you. But you are going to worship something. So let's look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And let's see how Paul illustrates for us the heart of idolatry. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. So what I want to do this morning as we look at this passage of Scripture is I want us to ask five questions. Five questions that will help us get a handle on what this passage teaches and really on what the, the heart of idolatry really is. So here's the first question. It's a basic question, and it's the first question. How do we actually become those who worship and serve created things rather than God? Question, how do we become idolaters in the first place? What leads us to actually worship a created thing rather than the creator? Why does that happen? Well, here's the answer. And verse 18 gives us the answer. The answer is simply this. Sinners suppress the truth about God that he's made plain in creation. Notice what verse 18 says. For the wrath of God is revealed... From heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The word suppress means to hold down, to push aside, to to bury. And here's the issue. You can look up at the stars in a starry sky You can look at the waves crashing on a beach. You can look up at a snow-peaked mountain. You can look at creation and in your heart of hearts know that it was 
a creator who put those things there. All humans know that in their heart of hearts. But here's the problem. They suppress and push that knowledge down and fail to come face to face with their creator. So, for example, when you're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and you're looking at the grandeur of the Grand Canyon or you're on the top of a 14er here in Colorado and you see the Continental Divide or you're on the sandy beach looking at the waves and seeing the sunset go down over the beach, you know intuitively that there's a Creator. God says it right here. It's been plain. It is plain as day that there is a Creator, that you are small and insignificant, and that someone greater than yourself has put those things there. But here's what we do. We suppress that. We push it down. And really what it is, it's rebellion against common sense. It's rebellion against common sense, because God's made it plain. But what happens when you suppress this truth that God has made so clear? He says... Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them. God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. It's clear, it's plain. But what's the result of suppressing that truth? Notice the very end of verse 20. They are without excuse. It's a legal term. It means in the court of law, you are stripped bare of all defenses and you are standing there with with your hands over your mouth and there's no defense. You're guilty, you're accountable, you are stripped bare before the living God and you're accountable to this God who's created you, even though you may not acknowledge him. So you could say this, there's really no such thing as an atheist. Now there may be those that are confessing themselves as atheists who say, I don't believe in God. But in their heart of hearts, they do acknowledge that there's a God, but what they do is they suppress that truth. They push down that truth. They don't want to come face to face with that truth. And instead, what pops up in its place is an idol. They suppress the truth that's been clear to them. And the Bible says every person that suppresses that truth about their creator is without excuse because God has made it plain. God has made it clear in his creation. So here's the second question that this this passage of Scripture begs us to ask. Here's the second question. How does idolatry actually work itself out in your life? What does it look like in your life? If if you're suppressing this truth and you're you're not believing this God, how does idolatry manifest itself in your life? Well, he gives us really three truths here. And we see these in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So first of all, you fail to honor and thank God for all that he is and has done for you. So what should your knowledge of God lead you to do? If you look at creation and you see all this beauty, what should it ultimately lead you to do? To worship God, to thank God, to give Him praise for giving you all these things. Now, we as believers understand this. We give thanks to God. We give praise to God. It's, it's the month of Thanksgiving. But even non-believers, should not those who don't even believe in God give Him thanks? Because God has caused the rain to fall upon them. God has allowed them to have gifts and talents to be able to work and to have have jobs. God has blessed them with good health. And so the problem is, is that God has blessed us with all these things, and yet we fail to thank Him properly. We're We're ungrateful. 
And then secondly, notice what he says there in verse 21. You begin to have futile thinking. They become futile in their thinking. That word really means worthless. You begin to think in ways that are worthless, really. You don't have what's called a biblical worldview about reality. You begin to have a worldly viewpoint. Your mind begins so corrupted that, that, that logic just flies out the window. That's what a futile mind is. Logic just seems to go out the window. And we're seeing that in culture today, are we not? Look, look down at verse 28. Verse 28 says, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. A debased mind, a futile mind, that's one of the signs that you're giving into idolatry. You've literally lost your mind. Now, you may not admit that you've lost your mind, but think about this for a moment. Think about culture for a moment. How often do we see this in our culture today, that people can be face-to-face with logical arguments, with cogent arguments. You can lay forth the facts. You can give them all the information. You can give them what they need to do, what they need to believe. It's very clear, and they will look you in the face and say, I don't care. I'm going to live however I want to. Logic's thrown out the window because they have a futile mind. Their mind has become so corrupted by the world that they're not even thinking logically anymore. And then the third thing that happens is you begin to have a darkened heart. For although they knew God, verse 21, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Not just the way you think, but really the whole seat of your emotional life, the whole, the whole um, passion, decision-making, everything about you becomes darkened. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? Did you, did you notice that? They went after worthlessness and became worthless. That's what idolatry does to you. When you chase after idolatry, you begin to look like that which you chase after. And if it's something worthless, if it's something corrupt, if it's something ungodly, you begin to eventually look like that and act like that and value that. And what it eventually leads you to do is to have a false sense of reality about your condition before the living God. Look at verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. See, self-deification leads to self-deception. When you place yourself on the throne and you begin to have all these idols, you begin to have a false sense of reality. You think you're wise. You think you've got it all together, but really you're a fool is what the Bible's saying. You have a warped sense of reality. Now here's the third question we need to ask. Why is idolatry so dangerous? Why is it so dangerous? I want you to circle a word that you should just jump out on the page at you. And this is in verse 23. And you also see it in verse 25. They exchanged. Circle that word. They exchanged the glory of God for created things. Down in verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. 
Think about what an exchange is. It's a substitute. Think about this. Okay, so it's Christmas time. And somebody gives you a gift at Christmas and you open it and you're like, ah, thanks. This is interesting. And you can't wait for Walmart to open the next door so you can go and do what? Exchange it. Because you really didn't like it. So I'm going to go wait in line to exchange this gift for something that I value more. Really, that's what Paul's saying. You could care less about God. You kind of get God as a gift, and you're thinking, well, that's kind of interesting. But what I really want is this other thing. And so you exchange, you take God to the, to the returns counter, and you exchange him for something that you think is going to be better. Now, that's scary. Because what's, what are you exchanging God for? Notice what he says there. In verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. What kind of images? Resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. It reminds us back of Genesis chapter 1, where God created the birds, the animals, the creeping things, even people. And making idols is forbidden in God's word. We looked at this back in the spring when we looked at the book of Deuteronomy. But Deuteronomy 4, 16 through 18, listen to how God describes to Moses what happens when you give into idolatry. He says this, Beware lest you act corruptly. How would you be acting corruptly? By making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure. The likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that's on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish in the water under the earth. Idolatry is acting corruptly. And notice here what Paul says. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. Images. Now that word's very important, images. What does it remind us of? Genesis 1, we as humans were made in the image of God to reflect God's glory, not to take the glory from God, but to reflect God's glory, and definitely not to worship what God has created. Now, we're going to look at this next week. We're going to see idolatry illustrated in the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32, but I want you to notice how the psalmist describes what the Israelites did in their idolatry with the golden calf. Psalm 106, 19 through 21. Listen to how the psalmist describes it. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Notice how the psalmist even uses the same terminology. They exchanged the glory of God for an image. Whether that be a person, whether that be an animal, whether that be a concept, anything that's not God. Jeremiah 2.11. Listen to how Jeremiah describes it. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. So here's the, the, the damning reality of exchanging God's glory you end up with something that's not God. But you think it's God. And you're exchanging the glory of God for something he's created, thinking that's going to give you meaning and purpose. And it doesn't. And then to make matters even worse, go down to verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Second exchange, they exchanged the truth of God, or literally the true God, for a lie. 
and then began to worship images, exchanging. Again, we see this concept show up in the Old Testament of this whole idea of of exchanging God's glory, exchanging God's truth for idols and for lies. 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 15. They despised his statutes and his covenants that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded to them that they should not do like them. Notice again, they chased after false idols and they became false. Let me just say it again. You will eventually become what you worship. You will eventually begin to look like what you value. And if it's an idol, it will destroy you. If it's God, it will save you. There's no neutral ground when it comes to the human heart. Because here's the reality. All humans were made for worship. That's why we were made. We were made, we were created to worship the living God. That's what our heart was made to do. But here's the problem. When we suppress that truth, when we become with a futile mind, when when our hearts get darkened, we end up exchanging what we were created for for something that we think is going to be the be-all, end-all. I want you to think about this image for a moment. How many of you have ever been in a swimming pool and you've, you've played with one of those beach balls and you've tried to push the beach ball down? How long does it stay down? Not very long. What, ha- what ends up happening? It pops up. You can only suppress the truth so long until something pops up. And this is what idolatry is. Idolatry is this. You suppress the truth about God, you push the truth about God down, and then something's going to pop up in its place. And what pops up in its place? An idol. Because we were created to worship. Our minds are a perpetual factory of idols. That's what idolatry does. You begin to worship. You begin to look like. You begin to reflect what you most value. And that will either destroy you or that will save you. Here's the fourth question. How does God respond to our our idolatry? I should have started with this, but I wanted to build a case of what idolatry is and then back up and say, how does God respond to this? Look at verse 18. Here's how God responds to it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Notice that God's wrath is in the present tense. It is being revealed. Now, ultimately, there's going to be a day of wrath in the future where God's going to pour out his judgment on that final day, but this is in the present tense that says right now God's wrath is being revealed. Now, it leads us to ask a question, what's God's wrath? Does that mean God is like Zeus who gets his jollies out of throwing lightning bolts on people? Does that mean that he's like a a child that got his toy taken away from him and he's crying in the corner having a, a hissy fit because he didn't get his way? That's not what God's wrath is. It's not human wrath. See, we as humans display really sinful wrath at times. That's not God's wrath. What God's wrath is, it's really his settled and righteous anger against sin. His settled and righteous anger against sin. God has to punish sin. It's not that he's out of control. It's not that he's willy-nilly. It's his settled righteous anger that's against sin because he's a holy God. Now, I want to show you something very scary because verse 24 teaches what we call the passive wrath of God 
versus the active wrath of God. Look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up. Or some translations say God gave them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So let's talk about the active wrath of God and the passive wrath of God. What's the active wrath of God? The active wrath of God is very easy to see. It's those big moments in history where God acts in, in big ways. The flood. He flooded the earth. That's the active wrath of God. Sodom and Gomorrah. And we think about Korah in the Old Testament who rebelled against Moses and the earth swallowed up and, and, and the earth consumed him. Or we looked a few weeks ago about Uzzah who touched the Ark of the Covenant and died on the spot. We've got these examples in the Bible of these big moments where God pours out his wrath in very dramatic and demonstrable ways that can be seen. That's the active wrath of God. But what's the passive wrath of God? Passive wrath of God is where God says, listen, you want to sin? I'm not going to stand in your way. I'm hands off and see how that works for you. I'm going to let you go the natural course of your sin and face the consequences of that. I'm going to give you over to the lusts of your flesh. And you're going to just reap the benefits of what sin will actually do in your life. One commentator has said it like this. God ceased to hold the boat as it was dragged by the currents of the river. In other words, picture in your mind this. If you want to go down the proverbial sewer pipe of sin, and that's what you want to do, and that's the course you want to go, God says, okay, I'm letting you go. Takes his hands off the boat and says, you go. You follow the course of that river and see where it leads you. That's scary. Because God is taking away all restraint. God is taking away all grace, and at that point he's saying, listen, if you want sin, if you want idolatry, if that's what you want, have it. God gave them over, and they suffered the just consequences of the rebellion. We see this illustrated again in the Old Testament, Psalm 81, 11 through 12. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts, to follow their own counsels. I gave them over to follow their own course. And here's the end of what God's wrath looks like. Look at the end of verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen you end up worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Now, you may say that, that that's not that big of a deal. Here, here's what happens. Think about idolatry for a moment. You put all your energy, you put all of your time, you put all of your effort, you put all of your passion, you put all of your attention, you put all your stock, all your hope in that one thing. You serve it. You worship it. You give yourself to it. You find your security in that. You find your fulfillment in that. And here's the harsh truth about that. All of those things that you serve that are created things will always let you down and you end up becoming their slave. That's the issue. You serve what you worship. And if it's not God, you end up becoming its slave. You're a slave to the things that you worship if it's not God, and they disappoint. And what you serve, you eventually become. 
what you worship, you eventually look like. And what you surrender yourself to, you will ultimately become its slave. Now notice the wording that's used there in verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth for a God, the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served. Worshipped and served. Worshipped and served. Worshipped and served. It's talking about idolatry there. You worship and serve your idol. Where else in the Bible do those two words come together? Worshipped and served. Worshipped and served. Well, the best illustration is when Jesus was in the wilderness and he was being tempted with idolatry himself. And what does he say to Satan? In Matthew 4.10, Jesus says these words to Satan. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and only in him only shall you serve. You shall worship and serve the Lord only. That's who you worship and serve is the Lord. You worship and serve the Lord, not your idol. And then at the end of Revelation, at the end of the Bible, what will we as Christians be doing forever and ever in heaven? Revelation chapter 7 verse 15 tells us, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. What will we do in heaven? We will worship and serve God. What did Jesus say when the devil tempted him? You shall worship and serve God alone. What are we created to do? Worship and serve God. What does it say here at the end of verse 25? They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So here's the final question. We've looked at what idolatry is. We've looked at how dangerous it is. But what's the answer? What's the answer to conquer our idolatry? What's the answer? The answer is the gospel. Now I want you to go back two verses right before this whole teaching on idolatry and go back to verse 16. This is Paul's thesis of his entire book of Romans, but it's right before this teaching on idolatry. Notice what he says here. Verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation. Everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. There's power in the gospel. Not just for our salvation, but for our ongoing growth. And notice it says in verse 17, his righteousness is being revealed in the gospel. Verse 18, God's wrath is being revealed in idolatry. God's wrath is revealed in idolatry. God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. So I want to show you in Romans the counterpoint verse, the antithesis verse, the exact opposite. Think about these images that we've just looked at in Romans chapter 1, and then turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, and I will show you the answer, the exact opposite of what idolatry looks like. If Romans chapter 1 is idolatry, Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 is the life of a Christian who is not an idolater. And I want you to see the images that Paul brings into Romans chapter 12 that he took from Romans chapter 1 to describe idolatry. So let's read together Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God as opposed to the wrath of God. What did Romans 1 say? The wrath of God's being revealed. What does it say here? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to do what? To present your bodies... As a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of the Lord is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. There are some huge contrasts between Romans 1 and Romans 12, and Paul uses the same language. 
In Romans 1.24, they dishonored and they debased the Lord with their bodies. And here in Romans 12, what does it say? We're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. What is idolatry? Degrading your body. What is serving the living Lord? Offering your body as a living sacrifice. In Romans 1.25, they worshipped and served. They worshipped and served the, crea- the creation, the creature. But what does it say here? When you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, that's your spiritual worship. It's the worship of the living God. In 121, back in Romans 121, their minds had become futile. Their minds had become darkened. Their minds had become corrupt. What does it say here? Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You will eventually become, you will eventually look like what you value the most. And that will either ruin you or it will rescue you. It will either destroy you or it will save you. So the answer comes to having your minds renewed by the gospel, by the word of the living Christ. So how do you keep yourself from idolatry? How do you keep yourself from suppressing the truth? How do you keep yourself from making this damning exchange? Well, the Bible says you have your mind renewed. And as your mind is renewed, then you're transformed to look more like Jesus. So how do you renew your mind? You spend time reading your Bible, meditating on your Bible, praying to the living God, spending time in corporate worship. You saturate yourself with the things of Christ, and the Holy Spirit begins to do this work where He transforms and renews your mind, and the more that your mind is transformed, the more that your heart begins to transform, and guess what? The more that you begin to do things in your body that are a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. It comes full circle. It starts in your mind, it moves to your heart, and then it moves to your actions to where then you're living a totality of your life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the living God. It's very similar to what Paul says in Philippians 4.8. He says this, Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. See, when you begin to think about these things, when you begin to cherish the gospel, when you begin to love Jesus, when you begin to have your heart and your mind transformed, then guess what happens? Instead of exchanging all those things for a lie, you begin to reflect the glory of God and you begin to live a life that's a living sacrifice, worthy and acceptable to Him. So the question for you this morning is, will you be transformed by the renewing of your mind Or will you have a futile mind that believes the lies of the world? Will you offer your body as a living sacrifice to God? Or will you offer your body to degrading and debasing things, to impurity? Will you worship and glorify Jesus as your supreme treasure? Or will you exchange all of that for a cheap substitute that will never, ever satisfy? Will you suppress the truth about God? Or will you seek His truth and read his word. The ultimate question for you this morning is, is your heart a perpetual factory of idols? 
Is it just like Lucy on that conveyor belt? The, the sin, the idols just keep coming and coming and you don't know how to deal with them. And eventually you just start throwing them in your shirt and suppressing them and they overtake you. Will you cling to Jesus as your all in all? Little children, keep yourself from idols. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And there may be some of you here this morning that have an idol in your heart that you need to call out. You need to identify. You need to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you. Some of you are making some huge exchanges. You're exchanging the glory of God for something that's created. You're exchanging the truth of God for something that's a lie. And so only you know that, and only God knows that. But during this time of prayer, would you go and ask the Lord to show you deep in your heart what idols you have lying there? And would you ask him to renew your heart, renew your mind, transform your heart, transform your mind by the power of the gospel this morning? Would you spend some time in prayer this morning asking the Lord to seek your heart? Come to a time this morning of reflecting upon our sin, thinking about our idols. We also come to a time where we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And Lord, the Lord's Supper is not a thing that we come to and, and we try to be so worthy to take it. None of us are worthy to take this supper. What the Lord's Supper is, Jesus, is your table and you come and feed us. You come and spiritually nourish us. You come and show us grace and strengthen us. And so as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, let this be, Lord, a means of grace for us to experience afresh your grace in our life, your um, working in our lives, the, the promise that, Jesus, you paid for all of our sins, and the whole truth that, Jesus, you can conquer our idols through your finished work on the cross. So would you come, Lord, through the supper and minister to us in only the way that you can as the resurrected Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we take the